0: Down south to the land Of the pine, Coming my way to a North Carolina Staring at the road the wind. the way Trucker out of Philly had a nice long choke. But he's headed west to the Cumberland Gap to Johnson City, Tennessee. And I gotta get a move on before the sun. I hear my baby calling my name, and I know that she's the only one. if I die around it, at least I will die for you. Rock me, Mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, Mama. Wait. you we are the
1: bad Uh-oh.
2: precedents
3: to the dog.
0: Thanks, guys. That's real nice of you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Just crushing in the deepest ocean again,
4: y'all.
0: We'd like
5: to welcome a special guest, Representative Richard Raymond.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the historic Fitzgerald Theater in downtown St. Paul, Minneapolis, for another episode of A Prairie Home Companion. It's not really. Uh, this next song we're going to do for you is the official anthem of, a per- of uh, Late Wobegon, and if it's a little too loud, it's not too loud. I can't hear myself. Turn it up. You turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. Para bailar la bamba,
0: para la bamba, se necesita una boca de gracia, una boca de gracia pa' mi patía, ahí arriba, ahí arriba, ahí arriba, por arriba. por ti seré, por ti seré. Yo no soy marinero, yo no soy marinero, soy capitán, soy capitán, soy capitán. Bamba, bamba. I me, arriba. ay, arriba. ay, arriba. ay, arriba. I I I Bam, Shout. Come on, come on, come on, come on, baby, now! Come on, baby, come on work it all out. all hey, out. Hey, you look so good, you look so good. Hey, you look so fine, you look hey, so fine. Hey, you got me going, girl, when you got me going. going. I know that you're mine, let me know you're mine. Oh, shake it up, baby, now! Shake, shake it, it up, baby. Twist and shout, twist and shout. Come on, come on, come on, come on, baby, now!
4: And the Inspector General, Health and Human Services Commission on Rhythm, Guitar, and Backup Vocals. Give him a big hand. Come on Thank now. Thank you very much. Come on.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
4: All right. Now it's time for the real show. Oh, hold on, man. Hold on now. Take it easy, baby. I think it's time for them to come up. Come on, man. <laughs> We're going to do that in a little while now. Hold on now. we we'll kids back. are going to But laugh. now y'all know yeah, what, what the next you, song is. <laughs> I can name that too.
6: All right. Hi, everyone. And thanks for joining us for this very special (laughs) live taping of the Texas Tribune uh, Tribcast, which is our weekly podcast. And of The Ticket, a special presidential podcast hosted by our own Jay Root and KUT's Ben Philpott. This event is generously sponsored by Pearson. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, We are also joined, as you saw earlier, by the official band of Texas politics, the Bad Precedents, and we'll be hearing more from them uh, throughout the show. So, oh good, I love that you all got that little legislative joke. I like the
5: use of official. Yeah, exactly.
6: Uh, All right, let's get started here with the TribCast. I'm Emily Ramshaw. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, and I'm the host of the TribCast. I'm here with Texas Tribune executive editor, Ross Ramsey. Howdy. uh, State representative and former Marshall mayor, Chris Paddy. Howdy and uh, Houston Mayor and former State Representative Sylvester Turner.
3: Well, howdy as well. Welcome back.
6: (laughs) Thank you. Um, I want to kick off by talking to the three of you about an issue that's sure to come up in the 2017 Legislative Session, and that is local control. Uh, We are joined by a current mayor. We are joined by a former mayor. We have a state legislature who really wants the feds out of its business uh, but can't seem to stay out of the city's business. So I'm interested in in talking to the two of you in particular about your experiences as mayors, as state representatives. Uh, What gives?
3: Mr. Mayor? (laughs) Well, you know, I believe strongly in local control. You know, as Mayor of the City of Houston now, uh, I think uh, uh, local control does work, and it works extremely well. I was in the legislature for... uh, 26 years, and for most of the 26 years, we always said, uh, respect local control. I don't think that principle needs to change right now. I mean, uh, look, uh, I'm right there, day to day, dealing with potholes and everything else on a localized level. And I think uh, uh, the members of city council, the mayor, know what's best for the people in our jurisdiction. So it's my hope that, uh, that the legislature, the state will respect that. And I've heard quite a bit about uh, the state saying to the feds, stay out of our business. Don't try to dictate to us. I hope that the state will exercise that same uh, position when it comes to cities like the city of Houston.
6: So it seems like he's making a special request to you about things like ride hailing or fracking bans or sanctuary cities. What do you think, Representative?
7: Well, I mean, obviously, as as was mentioned, I am a recovering locally elected official. (laughs) Uh, And so I do know Exactly what the mayor is talking about and I too believe in local control now I recognize a lot of people say well, the legislature's view of local control is we believe in local control until we don't like what the locals do And then we think there's a statewide solution Uh, And I understand some of that frustration. However, sometimes I believe that the state is the most local uh, depending on the issue Uh, And whether it's ride hailing or some of these other issues, sometimes it does make sense for the state to be the most local, because uh, business doesn't stop at the county line or the city line. Uh, it depends on the issue. Now, I, I firmly believe in local control, and I know when I serve locally, uh, what my folks were screaming about were potholes. Uh, you know, they want police and fire protection. They want uh, you know, nice parks. They want all of those things, uh, and and they should have those things. And, and I do believe those that are closest to the people generally can serve them best. But sometimes the locals don't have the expertise to make some of those decisions. And it needs to be elevated to a state level.
5: You know, but the last two things that the legislature, the thing that the legislature did last time and the thing that is considering this time, last time was fracking. It started with a vote in Denton where the city's voters decided they didn't want um, hydraulic fracturing inside the city limits. Um, the legislature effectively overruled them. This time, the voters in the city of Austin decided um, Uber and Lyft were asking for too much and said, you know, you're going to have to get your drivers checked out." those companies decided to leave. In both these cases, the legislature either has overruled the voters or is considering overruled
7: the voters. Does that give you any pause? Again, it, it, I think it, uh, it somewhat depends on the issue. You know, the ride-hailing issue, that's one, you know, we, obviously, we, I'm sure you want to talk about that one a little bit, uh, <laughs> particularly given the company here. Uh, and, you know, again, that is a great example, I think, of the state being the most local entity to control that, because again, it doesn't make sense uh, to have regular regulatory uncertainty where you can pick up someone in Sugar Land, drop them off in Houston, but you can't pick somebody up in Houston and take them elsewhere. The same would be true for Dallas or Fort Worth, that type of thing. And so, uh, I think it makes sense uh, for there to be regulatory certainty uh, so that we're not stifling innovation and limiting options in the way of transportation. Now, I recognize on that issue that. Mayor Turner inherited that issue. Uh, he was not there, and, and, and the, uh, the Mayor Turner I know is a very reasonable man, and so I expect there to be a lot of dialogue going forward. And I am. <laughs> uh, and so I expect there to be a lot of dialogue going forward as to how do we address this, this issue, because right now in the city of Houston, you have one ride-sharing company, uh, basically. Now I realize there's some others that have popped up here in Austin, uh, but they haven't popped up there, and why is that?
3: But, but let me just say, though, Representative Patty, and, but they are, they are popping up in, in the city of Houston. They're going through our permitting process you know, right now. Um, it can't be local control as long as local control agrees with, as long as, let's say, Austin agrees with that local control. When I say Austin, I'm referring to the legislature. Same thing, it can't be state control as long as D.C. agrees with the state. And I think, I think the leadership in, in, in the, in, at the Capitol would say to people in D.C., don't try to dictate to us. Well, if we're going to assume that, if we're going to take that position, then the same thing uh, I think many cities like City of Houston will say to the, to, to the Capitol, to, to the legislature, don't try to dictate. On the, on the, on the, on, um, the ride program transportation issue, um, in 2014, for example, in the City of Houston, everybody was at the table. Everyone, uh, including Uber. The ordinance that the city of Houston is is working under right now is an ordinance that Uber was at the table when that decision was made in November of 2014. I come into office in January of 2016. I haven't changed a thing. And then all of a sudden someone is sending me a letter and I got the word on social media first. The letter came afterwards saying change the ordinance or we leave, okay? But nothing has changed since I became mayor. And you have members of city council, 16 of us, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and progressives, saying this is what we want in the city of Houston. And I think Austin, the capital, the legislature, ought to respect the wishes of the people in the city of Houston. Um, and I'm in front of them every single day. And on an issue, for example, of fingerprinting, you know, I can't speak for what other jurisdictions elect to do. But if the people in the city of Houston says that this is a public safety issue for the people in the city of Houston, I would like to think that the legislature will honor the wishes of the people in the city of Houston.
6: I wanna I wanna transition to another issue that is has sort of local control repercussions and well, they're trying to pull <laughs> us off the stage already. Uh, you know, on the, on the federal level, we have the Obama administration um, passing down guidelines to schools about transgender students and bathroom usage. Uh, at the state level, we have the lieutenant governor, you know, uh, reaching out to individual districts and saying, hey, what you're doing is not correct. Uh, how big of a priority is this transgender bathroom issue going to be in the legislative session? It's become a rallying cry for conservatives of late. Uh, Representative Patty, what, you know, how much political capital is tied up in this?
7: Uh, Emily, I think that's a great question, and, and I think it maybe it depends on where you are because I'm a rural representative. I represent a rural part of the state in East Texas, and I spend a lot of time talking with my local superintendents. I've spent the last two weeks doing town hall-type meetings. It's kind of that time of year for me in all six of my counties. And you know how many times this issue has is, is, is come up or, or someone's presented <laughs> it as an issue in my district? Zero. You do represent the city of Uncertain, though. No, I do, and it is, it is, it is uncertain, uh, everything that goes on there. And not to say that I, I, it's not a, something that needs to be discussed, but to be honest with you, as I travel around and I visit with my constituents, I'm reacting to what they want. Uh, so is your lieutenant focusing. governor
6: out of line, then, in making this such a big no, I'm priority? Not
7: gonna, I'm not going to necessarily speak to that. Honestly, it's not something that I give a lot of thought to right now because, again, I'm responding to what my constituents want to talk about, and they want to talk about transportation they want to talk about education they want to talk uh, about all of these other needs that we should be about uh, so you would
6: not push for this then in the upcoming legislative session any push kind, for it
7: as any, any kind as of state as state? file a bill or
6: yeah or or you, know, or you know lobby for it aggressively I mean you, know, you wouldn't push for it in the legislature I, I,
7: I would have to see whatever it is I need to see it first I and mean, it's the same reason people don't a lot of these folks to send out questionnaires they get real mad at me because I don't answer a lot of them because they're really broad strokes of, do you support this or that? And we all know, any of us who've been through at least one session, know that it can take all sorts of twists and turns, uh, and you can get yourself in a situation where you contradict maybe what you've said something. So I, I want to see it. I want to see what we're talking about here.
6: Uh, Mayor Turner, I mean, a lot of this issue bubbled up in Houston, obviously, with the Equal Rights Ordinance, which ended up becoming really sort of a referendum on on bathrooms. It was not just Republicans who came out and and overruled this ordinance. It was, you know, voters in the African-American community, Democrats. Uh, What happened there, and, you know, could this have been sort of uh, stemmed off in Houston?
3: Well, I think, number one, I think the vote that took place on that hero ordinance, uh, the vote against was not a vote for discrimination. I think it was, it, was, it was so based on fear, and that's what people heard more than anything else. I mean, look, in the city of Houston, we are the most diverse city in the country, the most diverse, from all walks of life, from all over the, all over the world, are right here, are right there in the city of Houston, and we are welcoming an embracing city. I mean, before I became uh, mayor, uh, you had Anise Parker, you know, openly lesbian, mayor of the city of Houston. And then after Anise Parker, I mean, Look at me. I mean, I think I'm, you know.
7: What's wrong with you? Well,
3: <laughs> the, the, the point is, and that's the point that I'm making, is that uh, Houston is a very welcoming place. And so that vote was not a vote to discriminate against. It was a vote that was based on fear. And I think if you ask people, separate and apart from all of the TV ads and everything else, would you discriminate against this group or any group based on um, their sex, their orientation, their race, their ethnicity, their religion, their gender. And I think if you ask them, I think most Houstonians would say, no, we do not discriminate in housing or, in, or employment. So I think you have, to, you have to look at that vote in the context in which it was being discussed. Um, but we will continue to be a positive city, a progressive city moving forward, and uh, that's the way I choose to lead.
6: Would you resurface that Equal Rights Ordinance?
3: I think in in due time, all of these issues will be revisited. So that's Uh, a yes? Well, for right now, my focus when I came in, I said, was going to be on getting the financial condition in line. I came into office. We were $160 million short. And we have gotten that done, and it's now behind us. I came in, and we were facing some pension issues with the unfunded liability being $7.7 billion. And that issue has been unaddressed for the last 15 years. And I said I wanted to focus on that issue. And we out, you know, put forth a plan on last week dealing with that issue. So we'll get that subject to the legislative approval. And I'm hoping the legislature will do it. Okay. I think once people see that we're able to handle, that we're handling the, the city's day-to-day business, and we're getting our house in line, then I think people will trust us as we move forward and, and work on diversity. But what but, but I've repeatedly said over the last nine months, you can be diverse. And that's one thing. That's descriptive. But you have to be diverse and inclusive, which means everybody has to be around the table, and we need to be reflective of the diversity that exists in the city. So that's and we will we will address it as we move and forward. And
7: Emily, who knew that all that Houston needed to solve its financial problems was for Mayor Turner to show up with his abacus <laughs> and
3: get true, it I was hoping it might
6: make an appearance on stage. Uh, yeah, already? I
3: was I was really and looking I, forward to and seeing I, it. And I, and I still have my abacus. It's on well, your desk. I bet. <laughs> we're
6: going to talk about that abacus <laughs> and it in is. a second. But Ross, I mean, why has this become such a political hot potato? I mean, suddenly, why is there this out of nowhere moral imperative, for, you know, from the state's Republican leaders to get this done?
5: Well, you get a you know you get a thing kind of a kinetic reaction you know Houston has the hero ordinance and that fight got a lot of attention from political people whatever you think about the policy things you got know, a lot of political people said hey that moves crowds around you got the stuff going in North Carolina and you had the business push back there the administration proposed through its education department some rules about how to handle transgender kids in public schools and that happened to land right before the state republican convention started in dallas and the lieutenant governor grabbed it and grabbed a microphone and we were off to the races and it seems to be a big issue now Mm -hmm. it's a you know it seems to be kind of to the mayor's point it seems to be a bigger political issue than policy issue at the moment but it's a big political issue
3: well the reality is that these are our kids and our kids don't come in the same shape size or orientation these are our kids and regardless of what the uh, their differences may be, they're ours and we need to embrace them. We, do, we don't need them going to school or walking uh, in our communities and neighborhoods as if they are outcasts because they are not. They are our kids. Uh, and, and I think we have to acknowledge and embrace them. Same thing with adults. People are all different. There was a time as an African-American, we were outcasts, so to speak. Uh, so my deal is let's, let's be respectful and of who people are. Let's accept people for who they are, and let's not try to force them to be like somebody else. Uh, and let's love them, and, and let's embrace them, and let's welcome them, And, and uh, so people don't have to walk around feeling as though uh, I'm, I'm, I should walk around in shame because society says that I don't fit the common mold. Are Very few of you, us or do. Are
5: either of you seeing any business pushback like you saw? Totally not accustomed to people clapping. They're clapping. The they're gas. clapping for you. Maybe they yeah. clap in their cars. Right? <laughs> uh, have either of you seen any kind of any of the kind of pushback or businesses talking about the kind of pushback that they've seen in North Carolina about this issue?
3: You know, I, I think with, with regards to the city of Houston, you know, um, with that vote being what it was, you know, it could, that's people could have been saying, "Hey, no way to the city of Houston." But I think when you look at what took place on that vote. Um, that was a vote based on people's fears. And, 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 and so and I, I, I got that. But, uh, but if you ask, and I have asked many Houstonians, were you voting to discriminate? Was that a vote based to discriminate on people based on housing or employment? And most folk end up saying no. So um, we'll keep going forward. We'll keep moving forward. Um, and, again, I, I, I think uh, when you look at who the pr- previous last the mayor before me and local where I am and the city, in the fourth largest city soon to be the third I you know I think you know put me on the stand and I can testify that Houston is still very much embracing people and um, and we're not going to re- reject folk because of that diversity you know
6: all right, I want to break out the abacus and talk about the budget for a couple of minutes. Uh, Representative Patty, obviously you're on, on the um, legislative committee that looks at energy prices, oil prices, which have not been phenomenal. And uh, Mayor Turner, you've got a ton of experience on appropriations in the legislature and now are are balancing budgets on your own in Houston. What kind of budget can we foresee in the upcoming legislative session, and are we going to have enough money to go around
7: Um, That is an excellent question. You know, I think you have to back up to last session and look at what we did there. And at a time where uh, we were pretty flush, there was, it's obviously, as we know, in our personal lives, it's a whole lot easier to budget when you have money, and we had some money. However, we were very careful not to spend all the money, at least that we were told we were going to to have. And, uh, boy, that's been a a really great thing, uh, given what's happened now, because obviously the budget revenue estimate was revised down. Uh, you know, three billion dollars shortly after not too long after we got out of session and of course by the time we get in January I think I'm hoping we're, we're right around uh, flat uh, frankly and so hopefully we're not staring at a situation like we had in 2011. I wasn't here yet but uh, where you have this devastating situation of a, uh, a shortfall and, and cuts come into play and, and, and people start getting harmed in that and so uh, I, you know, we'll see what the economy does, uh, but I think uh, looking back, we were very smart not to spend all the money.
6: What do you think? I mean, obviously, you've, you've been there, done that. I mean, if you were still in the legislature, would you be going into this session with your heart in your throat?
3: No. Uh, I was on the Appropriations Committee for 21 of my 26 years. Um, I went, we went through the budgetary situation in 2003, we were $10 billion short, um, and we came through that. In 2011, we were projected uh, to be we were probably about, let's say, anywhere between 17 to $21 billion dollars short, and we got through with that. The rainy day fund is still healthy. Uh, oil prices have been stubbornly low, but they will bounce back. Um, when I came in as Mayor of the City of Houston, we were $160 million dollars short, uh, but we went through the budgetary process. Uh, we you know, trimmed some things, Identify what the priorities are, and we got that squared away. And for the first time in Houston's history, uh, the budget was unanimously approved. Um, so you know things will come back. The state of Texas is still open for business. The city of Houston is still open for business. All prices uh, will come back. Uh, but I do think this is an opportunity to make sure that we are not leaving dollars in D.C. And so let me let me segue into uh, Obamacare. Obamacare, <laughs> ACA, however you want to call it, whatever Texas name you want to give to it, but we can't afford to leave $300 million a month uh, in D.C. Uh, for other states to take advantage of. Uh, whatever dollars that are available that we can pull into the state of Texas, especially as it relates to uh, health care, we ought to be doing it. But I think it is fiscally unsound and unwise uh, not to take advantage of the $300 million a month that we are leaving in D.C. when oil and gas prices are low and the health care delivery system in the state of Texas is, is, is uh, fragile.
6: Ross, there are particular agencies that are considered sort of sacred cows, right? They've been told that they don't have to cut their budgets. Right. I mean, although, you know, we still, have age, we still have a sort of child welfare system where we have kids sleeping in offices. I mean, what are the stakes as far as the budget is concerned?
5: You know, they, I mean, they've got, you know, the big agencies they don't want to touch because they're, you know, health and human services you don't want to cut because, like you say, you've got foster children sleeping in state offices. You have uh, problems in some of the state mental homes. You've got regular problems that are extraordinary, like Zika. You've got all of those kinds of things to deal with. Nobody wants to cut education. I think a lot of people broke their noses on that in, my, in 2011 and don't want to go back to that uh, movie. If you cut prisons, you have to let people out. If you cut highways, you have to build potholes. I mean, there's a million things going on. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys about, there's a thing you put on the ballot a few years ago that basically dedicates a bunch of money that comes in, $5 billion to transportation, and set up another thing where the discretion for spending has left the hands of the legislature. You're gonna get some roads out of it, but you're gonna get constrained. Is that gonna be a problem as we go forward?
7: You're speaking to the $2.5 billion sales right. tax uh, right. that uh, was on the, ballot, on the Set aside on the last. Right. Well, obviously, uh, you've you got two sides of that issue. On one hand, we know we need more funding for transportation. Oh, uh, we have to find a way to do that. And we've got to uh, really be prepared to put everything out on the table and have a discussion. Not that we support all of those options, but it's going to take a combination of things but to do that.
5: Didn't that issue take a bunch of stuff off the table? Two dollars come in, and the state has to spend one of them on highways whether it needs that money more for something else or not.
3: After yeah. you reach a certain threshold. Right. After yes. you reach a certain threshold. But I, I, but I agree with Representative Patty. Um, we do need more dollars for transportation. I mean, in the city of Houston, between now and uh, 2040, we're expecting 3 million more people to come into Houston in the Houston region, the equivalent of placing another Chicago in our midst. Um, and transportation is a critical component. So we do need more dollars. So I support that initiative and we do need to find ways to providing more dollars to transportation. But at the same time, we need more flexibility with those dollars. It's not just about providing more dollars to transportation. It's allowing cities, let me go back to the local regional issue, allowing us the flexibility to utilize those dollars for multimodal forms of transportation. We just can't put dollars on building roadway capacity um, and thinking that's going to solve the problem. That's the old paradigm where right. people build roadways, build roads. And we've done that effectively. I-10 in Houston is the prime example. It's now 26 lanes, including the feeder roads, the widest highway, in one of the widest in the world. And we spent $2.2 billion on building it and finished it in 2008. And eight years later, it is the eighth most congested area uh, in the state of Texas. So if you build it, they will come. We need, mul- <laughs> the, we need more multimodal. Give us the discretion to do more things, either bike lanes, or two-way H O B lanes, commuter rail, light rail. Um, Uber pool. As long as they... As, <laughs> no, no. To be honest with you, I like Uber. I got the Uber app. I just don't want them... I like Uber. I just don't want them I'm to dictate... Just I just don't want them to dictate to us that unless you play by their rules, that we won't exist and then hold us hostage with the Super Bowl coming and tell me you either I change it or it. I know, but I'm sensitive. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> I know that about you it know, as well. You know. But 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 and we need transportation options and they do include Uber. Mm-hmm. They do include them. So, you know, I want them to stay in the city of Houston. I love them. Yeah, we need those <laughs> autonomous ones.
0: We,
6: right.
7: I mean, we, we just need have those a-
3: autonomous ones too, <laughs> like they're doing in Pittsburgh right but now. But you know, if the state of Texas says that the if the legislature says to Uber, follow the rules of the localities we wouldn't have a problem one of the reasons why we're having a problem is because they think yeah it's it's like it's like children going from the mother to the dad mom says no they go to the dad and in this case if they can go from the Houston and go to Austin to the legislature then it makes it very difficult to to parent that 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 individual right, well, i'm really yeah. sorry <laughs> <laughs>
7: I am really sorry I needled you right there and opened that can of
3: worms. It's so sensitive. They told me they were leaving. They sent it on social media. All right. What's your Uh, next question? We're going to
6: talk about something else (laughs) sensitive. We just have a couple minutes left, and we're going to tee up the ticket, I'm going to by asking each of you just this one quick question in one sentence. Ted Cruz's decision to endorse Donald Trump, politically smart, politically stupid. I'm
3: going to give you two sentences on that. You didn't have mine. we got to be quick. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm waiting on this one. Oh, you're not going first? No, I'm yielding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not a political strategist.
7: I am a recovering locally elected official that is in the radio business that now serves in the legislature. Uh, I don't run campaigns, and so that people smarter than
3: me make those decisions. Well, but you know. He passed. Well, I, I, <laughs> only for that moment. Uh, I was listening to the, the Republican convention, and Senator Cruz said to people, vote your convictions. Conscience. Vote your conscience. You know, I think he was right then.
6: Ross?
5: I thought it was a goofy political, as you know, I thought it was a goofy political move in July, and having said he did what he did on the basis of principle, um, what he's doing now seems like a violation of his own principle. He laid down a rule and he broke it. I don't see how that's an advance.
6: I'm going with stupid. All right. That's that's all the time we have for these guys. The bad precedents are going to come back up as our ticket crew takes the stage. But let's give a round of applause to representative Mayor Turner and Ross
5: Ramsey. Thank you, sir. This
4: next song is a quiet little song that we wrote. And- Made a lot of money off of it. Hope y'all like it. Sing along if you know the words. No go. In the woods among the evergreens, there stood a little cabin made of earth and wood, lived a country boy named And the train sitting in the shade Drumming with a rhythm that the drivers hate. People passing by, they would stop and say Whoa,
0: my, but that little country boy can play go go, 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 Johnny, go, go Go, Johnny, go, go Go, Johnny, go, go Go, Johnny, go, go Go, Johnny, go, go. go Johnny be good Come on, all. take it, baby
4: You will be the leader of a big old band. Many people coming from miles
0: around. Hear you play your music when the sun goes down. Maybe someday your name will be in lights, Say saying "Sebastian Turner tonight." Go, 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 go. 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 go.
2: Uh, Hello and welcome to a special live edition of The Ticket. I'm Ben Philpott.
8: And I'm Jay Root.
2: Today, as we tape this, we're just 45 days away from the 2016 presidential election. And I think everyone is ready to get this over with. Uh, That's probably very much true for our two guests on stage today.
8: Sarah Iskur Flores is a Republican strategist. She was deputy campaign manager for Carly Fiorina's 2016 run. She worked as political director for the Ted Cruz PAC, Texans for Ted Cruz. She's also been deputy communications director for the Republican National Committee. Sarah, welcome and thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. You can clap.
8: <laughs> here you go, all right.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's
2: right, yes. Uh, Eric Erickson is editor of TheResurgent.com, a conservative website. He's also a radio host on WSB in Atlanta, which stands actually for Welcome South, Brother.
8: Uh, and, Eric, thank you for being here Thanks today. for having me.
2: Thank you.
8: Now, other than being conservative, you may be wondering what these two people have in common. Well, neither one of them is happy with uh, the, this election's Republican nominee. Let's start with Eric Erickson on this. Now, we're going to get to the big news about Ted Cruz today. But before we do that, um, Eric, you put out a very thoughtful uh, reexamination of, uh, of not supporting uh, GOP nominee Donald Trump and whether or not, you know, you could reconsider that. Obviously, you came to a conclusion. What was it? And explain that to us.
1: As much as I don't like Hillary Clinton and think her policies would be bad for the country, I'm an evangelical Christian, and I think Donald Trump would be detrimental to the church in America, Uh, and there's no way I can support him. It's appalling to see Christians in this country talk about him the way they would Christ, Um, really awful, and uh, he doesn't reflect my values, and I guess I'm not a Republican at this point.
8: And so tell me about your decision. You, you uh, announced a decision today yeah. or yesterday, I believe, right? Well, he endorsed someone today. Yeah, well, I, someone You know,
1: I, I guess I should have made clear in that piece, it was my syndicated column, I'm not specifically endorsing him, although I think he's a legitimate uh, oh. uh, candidate, Evan McMullin. Uh, I interviewed him. I like him. I'm, I'm not 100% there yet. Got to make sure he's on the ballot in Georgia. My plan has always been to write in Peyton Manning. But you're going to vote for Evan McMullin if you can. I probably will if he's on the ballot in Georgia.
2: uh, So let's get on to Ted Cruz then, Um, and we'll start with Sarah on this one. Uh, You know, I have written down right here questions that we made up last night. Uh, We were going to ask whether or not Ted Cruz hurt himself by giving a non-endorsement of Donald (laughs) Trump at the convention. Obviously, he did did give a non-endorsement at the convention, Uh, has changed his mind today, um, so, stupid or good idea? I'll just take Emily's question from earlier. <laughs>
9: <laughs> well, so I, I actually said this back in, uh, in July at, after the convention, and I, I think it actually still holds true today. I don't think we know uh, what the damage was, and I don't think we will know for another year. I don't think this is something you can pull right now. I think, you know, when you're 45 days out from an election, emotions are so hot Um, You know, every mistake looks like it'll last forever, that everyone will remember it forever. And and we know that's not true somewhere in the back of our minds, but it it feels true right now. Um, You know, I think uh, maybe a little different than Eric, maybe not. I have enormous sympathy for anyone who's a conservative right now having to make this decision. My mother is a Trump voter. My father is not. (laughs) Um, So I come from a divided family already. And uh, I think it's incredibly difficult. Hillary Clinton is the worst possible Democrat nominee. Donald Trump isn't a Republican, yet he is the Republican nominee. Um, And so I I do feel bad for Ted. It's a horrible place to be in, um, as I think we feel like we're in. But Ted is obviously a senator who was put in the spotlight. But this
8: is Ted Cruz, though. I mean, his franchise is
1: testosterone. (laughs)
8: <laughs> and you know it's being
1: it's being Mr. Principal. And well, it- that is the problem for Cruz. Is that there are a, there's a huge contingent of people in Washington who do not like him, who think that this that his principled stand is really self interested, that it, it, it's all a show. And today they have their evidence that yes, it is. Uh, The people who stood with Ted Cruz and were giving him a second look because he did stand on principle. They're thinking maybe he really isn't self-interested. Today, they're all thinking he's self-interested. You should see my cell phone text right now from Ted Cruz staff. Um, They're as livid as most of his supporters. At the same
9: time, though, Hillary has had this catastrophic six weeks where if you thought that maybe you could live with her as an option, boy, is she doing everything she can to convince you otherwise.
2: Yes. And you were you were a Cruz supporter, is that correct? Uh,
8: at the end, yes.
2: were
1: uh, we all? <laughs> <laughs> no, what, should enough. He, what
8: should he have done? What should yeah. he have done?
1: I, I don't know that there was anything he could do. Uh, you know, if you actually go back to March, uh, people forget that you had Bob Dole, Trent Lott, Bill Frist, Mitch McConnell, John Boehner all come out and say, we can live with Trump, we don't like Cruz. Uh, you had an, a Republican establishment thinking, hey, we can convince Trump of things, and only after he got the nomination did they think, holy crap, we can't control him.
9: Right, we should be far more disappointed in that to a large extent. I mean, John Boehner's comments towards right. the end there, Lucifer and the flesh, and then the Satanists come out and say, no, he's not ours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a forgotten gem of 2016. Yes. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they had this very cynical right. uh, stance. I don't know that Ted's, I, I know some people will think it's that cynical, maybe it is, but... There's at least an option here where it was less cynical at least than that. Ted's not doing this because he thinks he can convince Trump of something. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, th- this whole you know, endorsement p- position of <laughs> weakness. I mean, what does what he gain now by endorsing Trump, particularly if Trump has a terrible debate on Monday <laughs> night, um, which, I yeah, mean, it seems I'm, like he maybe should have waited until yeah, after Monday, Yeah, I, I think right? so, yeah. That, that but then, to then we would all
9: sense. be saying that it was cynical, that it was a right. more... Uh, he's, that's well, no, that's,
8: that's true, too, that's, right? true. that's true. I mean... Well, what are you going to do? Who are you going to vote for?
9: I'm um, looking Peyton at... Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning. <laughs> we could, maybe we could just put Peyton Manning in the White House right now. Start I, th- the write-in campaign, awesome. we can do it. Uh, He's got free time. You know, I yeah. grew up with the Oilers. Like, we don't even have the Oilers anymore. Yeah. So, but
8: seriously, like, are you going to just write someone in, or what are you going to do? You know, a right. lot of people say that you need to pick the one of the two because that's the only real choice,
9: I don't um, believe that.
8: Okay, so what, what yeah, do you do? Do so, you sit it out? or
9: um, No, I, I do think I will vote. I, I haven't decided yet. Frankly, I, I can't believe this because I am an undecided voter, which is weird for me. Um, but I actually am interested in the debate from that standpoint. I actually will be watching if one of them can possibly be palatable. I think I know the answer already. I don't think it's a good one. But who knows? Like, I'm willing to be surprised.
8: Okay, how are Rooty. you leaning, then? How are you leaning? <laughs> Come
9: on. Um, I sometimes have trouble spelling Eric's name correctly, okay. but, like, I could write in him like, figure it out. There's, like, Ks and My Cs going on. My wife you down. And, like, like
8: <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's turn to uh, an issue There's is something that, that I'm very interested in, which is the issue of immigration and border security. Um, it's, you know, I've talked to pollsters, Republican pollsters, and they keep saying that, you know, it's still the number one issue Um, And obviously, voters want their candidates. Republican voters want their candidates to be really strong on this issue. How do you do that, particularly in a state like Texas, without angering
1: the growing Hispanic population? I think Republicans are dumbasses. Um, (laughs) What you do is you don't favor comprehensive immigration reform. Government doesn't do comprehensive anything well. I mean, that's the argument for Republicans against health care is that government doesn't do comprehensive anything well. So start with. Secure the border. And then once you've secured the border, then hey, what do we do with the people here? I personally uh, have a real hard time saying, hey, grandma's been here 40 years, but she came over illegally, let's send her home. Uh, I think that's a non-starter with most Americans. Maybe not for Trump supporters, but for people with common sense, it is. (laughs) Sarah.
9: Yeah, I mean, this was Carly's point during the campaign and one that I strongly agreed with, which is the comprehensive part is what keeps tripping people up. We're never going to agree on everything. Let's agree on the stuff we agree on. And by God, if that doesn't apply to a bunch of other issues that have become these, you know, third rail issues, we do agree on things in this country. It's just we don't agree on everything. Let's start with the things we agree with, and everyone agrees that the border isn't working right now. We can at least discuss those options first. And I tend to agree with your solution on the on the hard part, too, but mm. we can have that debate.
7: Right.
2: So we've had an issue here in Texas on immigration a little different recently. Our governor, uh, Greg Abbott, has said we're going to drop out of the immigration relocation or resettlement program because of concerns uh, that the governor and others have on uh, like immigrants from... Muslim countries, essentially. That's what we're talking about. Uh, there have been some faith communities that have come out saying, no, this is the wrong way to deal with a situation like this. And I wanted to ask you, especially with how you write and what you consider your faith, I mean, what, how you use your faith in what you consider and write about on the website uh, where do you kind of stand on something you know, like yeah, that? I'm really
1: good friends with guys like Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist Convention, who's very opposed to stopping the immigration plan. My problem is there was a report earlier this week that the Department of Homeland Security gave 850-some. Actually, no, they revised, it to, yeah, yeah, revised it to over 1,000 people uh, citizenship accidentally. Uh, and the Department of State just yesterday admitted that ISIS has tried to embed in the refugee program. Uh, if I have good faith in the competency of those administering the program, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have that, competen- that, that confidence in their competence right now. Uh, I would like to have that because I do think that uh, we should be a place where refugees can go. Particularly, I mean, the persecution of Christians in the Middle East is a story that's not getting as much coverage as it should. They should have a refuge here. You
3: have
9: I mean, the only thing I would say is, this takes us to a much larger issue, which is faith in institutions, incompetence in government. This is very small, important, but small piece of what we're seeing in everything. I mean, the only, the only group l- less trusted than basically every government institution is the media, which also isn't particularly healthy for a democracy. Um, and, and this latest report from the State Department, I think for a lot of people was just an eye roll, which is a problem. It, it doesn't even spark outrage anymore that they were supposed to be deported and instead we accidentally sent them citizenship. I think that's a pretty big gulf there.
2: Uh, Well, we've got a few more minutes, but uh, I think we wanted to ask just a couple quick more questions. Um, Texas and Georgia are not supposed to be in play. Uh, Based on polls that you look at, uh, they're definitely a whole lot more in play than they have been in, uh, well, since Carter, uh, since President Carter. So what I wanted to ask you, first of all, I was in Atlanta last week, to watch a Braves game. Braves lost because they're a really bad team. Yeah, um, <laughs> terrible. But uh, the uh, hotel I was at, the bottom floor of the building right across the street from the hotel, it certainly looked like it was getting prepped to be a Hillary Clinton campaign headquarters. What, what is going on in Georgia?
1: In Georgia, there, are, there is a population of Republicans, as I know Texas has some of these. Uh, they are uh, wealthy suburban and urban Republicans who are not naturally conservative, it's more pocketbook issues, and uh, Donald Trump scares the hell out of them when they look at their portfolio. And they are leaning towards Clinton. The, the latest polling I saw in Georgia has Johnny Isakson, the sitter up for reelection, 20 points ahead of the Democrat, uh, but Trump up three. Hillary Clinton's winning the Atlanta area by 20 points. Trump's winning the rest of the state by 20 points. Uh, and Atlanta has a huge population. I don't think the Democrats get Georgia this year. Every year, every election year for the past four, the Democrats have pushed a story that Georgia's in play, and it hasn't been. I don't think it is this year either. Uh, but again, did I mention Republicans are dumbasses? I mean, they they pick Donald Trump as their nominee. Of course, there are Republican states that are going to be in play. I can't think of a Democrat when that is.
8: Well, let's talk about Texas, where we are, because Texas is the only mega state of the four mega states that. Uh, always votes Republican, basically.
1: We're like Utah with 10 Alaska times the population. Alaska like an asterisk when you say major states. Well, I'm talking about population. Okay. Yes, I understand. All right. But
8: what is going on in Texas when, the, when these polls, you know, like a, a poll would come out and say, oh, that's an outlier. And then the Washington Post had one. Okay, well, it's an Internet poll. And then there's another poll. It is closer here than it, than it has been in a very, very long time. What's going on in Texas? And and Sarah, you might want to take this as well since you're a native Houstonian. Is that right? I
9: am. Uh, You know, for the past several cycles, similar to Georgia, Democrats have wanted this this idea, you know, turn Texas blue and all of that. Frankly, I think it's more of a donor ploy than it is um, a legitimate political one. I don't think that the Democrats here are particularly fooled by it, but it's a great way to raise money. And it's a great direct mail piece. It's a great major donor piece. Um, You know, do I think that Texas, you know, will creep in its numbers, uh, just demographically, of course, that's going to be true, but I don't think it's going to be close.
1: No, I I, I don't think it is, and part of it, I think, is uh, there are still a lot of undecided people who are being forced by pollsters to really pick a side. Uh, You had the Reuters report of their polling a couple of months ago that um, they started adding none of the above because when they were pushing people one way or the other, it was really skewing the polls, and I think that's what's going on, but that still is a measure of how weak the Republican candidate is, uh, and I'm still in the camp that he's not going to win largely because of Pennsylvania, the Electoral College, uh, but it shows there's a fundamental weakness for Republicans that it still is close.
9: Well, and in Texas, it will affect Will Hurd. I mean, Texas 23, Will Hurd is a, a great congressman, a great Republican, the kind we want a lot more of in Congress. And he is going to have a tough battle because of that, uh, whereas I think he would have, you know, walked away with it under a different Republican nominee.
2: I think John Kasich, who, of course, is speaking, uh, it's later tonight, yeah. right? Uh, he's campaigning with uh, Congressman Heard tomorrow, uh, another effort to try and get more support for him.
9: If you're from San Antonio or nearby or toward the border, <gasps> vote Will <Hurd. laughs>
2: Um So uh, I, you've definitely said that, uh, oh, no, you've definitely said he's, that Donald Trump is not a Republican. Oh, he's not. Yeah. Okay, so both of you, Donald Trump's a not a Republican, dollar. but but it seems that you have a little bit of a problem in that he is actually the Republican nominee. So here's kind of our final question of the night. Uh, my daughter is here with one of her friends. They're both freshmen in high school. Uh, this is the first presidential election that she's really connected on her own to. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know to. <laughs>
9: No, but really, I
2: actually I mean, think so we do owe that generation a you know, In 2012, she, she saw whatever mom and dad happened to be seeing. Now she is going out, finding her, her own information, making her own opinions and decisions about stuff, and she's going to be voting in 2020. She'll be 18 and able to vote in 2020. Um, Donald Trump is the GOP as far as she and millions of other 14-year-olds in this country think. He's the GOP. What do you say to them to try and convince them to give the party a look in 2020?
1: My response has been he's 35% of the GOP, um, and there were so many candidates that he was able to walk up the middle and take it. Um, Well, I get that, but he's he's there on the banner. Yes, um, Republicans are going to have to repudiate everyone uh, who aggressively stood with Trump in the primaries to prove that they're not the party of Trump. You know, the, the real irony of this election that everybody misses is that the reason Donald Trump did so well is because a segment of the Republican Party was really hacked off with Republican leaders in Washington who they felt like broke a lot of promises. Guess what? They're still gonna be there after Donald Trump goes back to Washington or to New York. <laughs> He's not going to Washington. <laughs>
9: <laughs> Please never make that Freudian slip again. <laughs> Um,
1: She had a small stroke on stage.
2: (laughs) She's okay. It's all right. (laughs) Uh,
9: So I'm a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics this semester, so I am um, around 18 to 21-year-olds every day, which is actually a joy, and it makes me very optimistic about the future of the country. Um, So I guess what I would say to you is the Democratic Party is actually, in the exact same turmoil that the Republican Party is, it is, uh, I mean, we can go into the very nerdy, political consultant of why Hillary beat Bernie, but uh, nobody beat Trump, but it could have been either party. They're both falling apart. You will turn 18. Please, join one of the two parties. Make them better. Fix them. This will, you're inheriting this, and we broke it. Uh, I broke it.
0: (laughs) 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 Um,
9: I would argue that that the fundamentals of the Democratic Party at this point are becoming more and more anti-freedom, anti-free speech, and the fundamentals of the Republican Party uh, are are liberty centered, opportunity centered. You can disagree with that, but that's my core belief. That's why I am a Republican until November 9th at least. Um, so, so fight for this. Don't don't give up because this cycle sucks.
1: Um, yes, uh, blame Dick Cheney. Uh, <laughs> and this is this is my ultimate political theory here. George Bush picked a vice presidential nominee who did not run after him. So Bush did not have to do the things that presidents typically do to secure a legacy through his vice president becoming president. As a result, the Republican Party could not have a referendum on George W. Bush's policies until his brother Jeb ran in 2016. It went badly for them. The Democrats are going to have this problem now as well because Barack Obama's done the same thing. You cannot have a referendum on Barack Obama's legacy without his vice president running, and that's going to be bad for them in the next five to six years.
8: Okay, so you can uh, answer this. In, you can answer
1: this in two words.
8: Who is better for the for the Republican Party, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Gets elected. Who's better for the future of the Republican Party? Botulism. <laughs> <laughs> Giant meteor. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. like really, you know,
1: just from a Machiavellian perspective.
9: Uh, I subscribe or uh, follow. I, I think Hillary.
1: Hillary. Yeah, the Alexander Hamilton principle, we don't have to say she's one of us. Republicans would have to say he's one of us, even though he's a Clinton donor. You agree with that?
9: Yeah, I think it's a little more complicated in that if Trump wins, uh, I think you will have a third party. I think it will fracture the Republican Party. Um, I think if Hillary wins, you will have a civil war within the party, but that ultimately there will be a Republican Party. Whichever side wins, one of them will, and it will take the Republican Party. So I don't... I'm... Fear saying that one is better than the other, I don't know that I can say, but, um, but there's different outcomes for the party. All
2: right. Sarah Isker Flores and Eric Erickson, thanks so much for coming out today and joining us check. for a live taping of The Ticket. And Emily Ramshaw from the Tribune now has a couple of housekeeping notes. i be really quick. I'm going to just use my outside
3: voice. I don't need a mic. Uh, yeah, we're
5: ready. Go ahead. Thanks, you guys. We sure had fun. Thanks for letting us come to this.